You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. When does learning begin? Are we at the end of privacy? And what does the road from curiosity to discovery look like? The TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, and new ways to think and create. Find the TED Radio Hour on iTunes under Podcasts. A smart old guy once said, and I paraphrase, if you don't want your enemies knowing your secrets, then don't share them with your friends. That was Benjamin Franklin, who obviously had a well-developed sense of privacy himself, as did his friends, the framers of the Constitution, when they went on to add the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. And that is the one that bars the government from searching our houses and from going through our stuff without a good reason and without a warrant. But none of those framer guys really foresaw this world of the Internet and mobile phones and the government's present practice of sweeping up huge amounts of data from both of these sources on us. And the question is, does that violate the framers' intent? What would Ben Franklin say about all of this? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, arguing for and against this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue for the motion, let's first meet debater number one. Please welcome Alex. Alex Abdo. Uh, and Alex, um, just a little biography on you. You're a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, you are involved in the ACLU's lawsuit against the NSA's uh, phone record program. In June of 2013, pertinent to your case, it was revealed that Verizon uh, was required to turn phone records over to the NSA. And as it turns out, your outfit, the ACLU, is a Verizon customer. So my question is, does this now mean you all switch massively to AT&T or Sprint? What happens? No, we're, we're still Verizon customers, and I don't think we could escape the NSA that easily. But uh, it's one of the reasons why we had a minor cause to celebrate at the ACLU, because we could finally prove that the NSA is collecting our records, uh, which is allowing us to have our day in court. It was a good thing, then. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> Thanks, Alex Abdo. And who is your partner? I'm joined by the illustrious Supreme Court and constitutional law expert, Elizabeth Wydra. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Wydra. Elizabeth, welcome. You are also arguing for the motion that mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. You're chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. That's a, a think tank and a law firm. And I'm just wondering, since we're here in Philadelphia, about two blocks from where the Constitution was drafted. Does that give you a bit of a, an exciting jolt? Oh, yes. I think it's fabulous. You know, I don't know if it's because I was christened on the 4th of July in the bicentennial year, or maybe my mother <laughs> read a lot of American history while she was pregnant with me, but since birth, I've always been very inspired by the work of those framer guys. You sound like a total ringer with the July 4th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I'm a lucky girl. See, the team arguing for the motion, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. 
And that motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. We have two debaters arguing against this motion. Please first welcome Stuart Baker. Stuart, you're a partner at the law firm Steptoe & Johnston. Uh, you were, you've got some pretty good credentials in terms of this issue. You were Homeland Security's first Assistant Secretary for Policy. You've also served as General Counsel at the NSA. That was back in the 90s. Uh, before we had this massive amount of Internet and cell phone data, on the whole, is having that amount of data more of a curse or more of a blessing? It's um Blessing, but a mixed blessing, I think, uh, for all of us, right? Uh, yeah. We all uh, like the stuff, and we worry about the cost. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. And Stuart, your partner is? Is the only man uh, in America who gets more hate mail on this issue than I do, John Yu. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John Yu. John Yu, you're arguing against this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Uh, You were two years at the Justice Department. Right after September 11th, uh, you authored a series of controversial memos uh, on the Geneva Conventions and enhanced interrogation. But now you're a professor at law at Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley, which is somewhat caricatured as a liberal stronghold. How, How does that work for you? Well, I I enjoy the company of liberals from time to time. Oh, they're not as bad as everyone says. They uh, have nice views from their houses, and they cook pretty good food, and they make wonderful handmade items for sale at gift shops. So it sounds like you've worked something out. Ladies and gentlemen, John Yu and the team arguing against the motion. So this is a debate. It's a contest. These uh, debaters, these two teams are arguing to persuade you of the rightness of their stance on our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. By the time the debate's ended, we have had you vote twice, once before and once after the debate. And I want to point out, victory for us is the team whose numbers have moved the most between the two votes in percentage point terms. On to round one. Round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. Here to argue for the motion, Alex Abdo. He is a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberty Union's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project and counsel in the ACLU's lawsuit challenging the NSA's phone records program. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Abdo. Thank you, John. I'm honored to be here tonight to discuss the mass collection of Americans' phone records, but before I get into the program, I think it's critical to recognize that tonight's debate is not just about phone records and is not just about the NSA. This is a debate about the kind of society we want to live in. Here's what it looks like to live in a society of mass surveillance. Every time you place or receive a call, the government knows who you talked to, when the call started, and how long it lasted. The government knows every time you called your doctor and which doctor you called, which family members you stay in touch with and which you don't, and which pastor, rabbi, or imam you talked to and for how long you spoke. The government knows whether, how often, and precisely when you called the abortion clinic, the local Alcoholics Anonymous, a criminal defense attorney, or the suicide hotline. Dragnet surveillance intrudes on the most fundamental of liberties in a free and democratic society, to be left alone by our government absent good cause. The phone records program breaks that promise. It places the entire country under surveillance without any suspicion. It discourages journalist sources from coming forward, and it causes ordinary Americans to hesitate before calling individuals or organizations that they would rather not have as a part of their permanent record on file with the NSA. Our phone records, especially when they are collected in bulk, are extraordinarily sensitive. They reveal all of your associations, personal, professional, medical, all of them. 
In fact, your phone records can be every bit as sensitive as the content of your phone calls. If you call someone other than your spouse routinely at one in the morning, you don't have to know what's said in order to know what's going on. And if a government employee calls a reporter a dozen times before news breaks of an illegal government operation, again, the call pattern tells the story. Our phone records are, in other words, a proxy for the content of our calls. Our opponents will say that the Supreme Court has already decided that phone records are not protected by the Constitution. This argument is based on a Supreme Court case from 1979 called Smith v. Maryland. But that case involved collection for several days of an individual criminal suspect's phone records. The NSA's program, in contrast, involves the indefinite surveillance of millions of innocent Americans. Our opponents will say that these differences don't matter, but it's truly bizarre to define the boundaries of privacy in the digital age on the basis of a legal opinion issued before the Internet as we know it was created, an opinion that many Supreme Court justices have already said is ill-suited to the digital era. One final point. Tonight's resolution is focused on phone records, but don't be fooled. The consequences are much, much broader. If the Fourth Amendment permits the bulk collection of our phone records, then it would permit the bulk collection of other similar records. The problem is that virtually everything we do today leaves a digital trail of some sort. Whenever you send an email, visit a website, use your credit card, or even just walk around with your phone turned on, you are leaving a rich trail of digital breadcrumbs in your wake. The arguments our opponents will make tonight would expose all of that information to routine bulk collection by the government. That's not the world that our framers envisioned when they drafted the Fourth Amendment, and it's not the world that you should accept. You should vote for the motion. The mass collection of our phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Thank you, Alex Abdo. And that is our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue against the motion, Stuart Baker. He is a partner at Steptoe & Johnson and former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. The question that we're debating is a question of law. Does the Fourth Amendment, is the Fourth Amendment violated by mass collection of phone records? If this were a true and false question on a constitutional law exam, and you said, yes, the Fourth Amendment is violated by that, you'd get a D, because the Supreme Court has decided that these are records that are not protected by the Fourth Amendment because of what Ben Franklin said. If you give away your secrets, they're not yours anymore. Other people get a say in them, and it's not a search when those people make those secrets available. So that is the state of the doctrine. What Alex said is, essentially, he doesn't like it. He wants you not to like it. Uh, but it is the Supreme Court's law ruling. If you decide, even if you decide that uh, taking these records is a, a, an event that implicates uh, reasonable expectations of privacy. The question is, is it reasonable for the government to have done what they did? And, and for that, I think we ought to address the question of why the government did this. The biggest terrorist threat we face is some terrorist group, well-organized, well-armed, with a safe haven that where they can bring people with clean passports together, recruit them, train them, uh, finance them, and then send them into the United States to carry out a coordinated attack uh, without any warning. It's almost impossible for us to catch those plots as they're being trained if there truly is a safe haven. The, our best hope is that they will have to coordinate, probably by phone, 
inside the United States and perhaps with their trainers and recruiters back in the Middle East. Uh, that's what, the, what happened in 9-11. We missed that opportunity. And that's what this program was designed to deal with. Uh, the only way you can actually do this as fast as the terrorists can carry out their plot is if you have them in one place where you can search them. And that's what the government did. They put the protections for privacy not on the collection, but on the question of what are we going to search. And they said you can't search without us a good reason for searching, a reasonable, articulable suspicion, limited people who can do it, lots of audits, uh, uh, no, number, no names in this database, only numbers, uh, and the uh, um, number of searches that were performed on an annual basis was about 300. That's the extent of the government's intrusion into privacy at a time when about a million records are gathered under a criminal subpoena. So we have a choice. We can either say, no, the government can never do that because it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, or we can say, we want to allow that to happen, but with privacy safeguards. I think the choice, especially at a time when suddenly we have a terrorist group that does have a safe haven, the choice is to choose privacy and security. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart Baker. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. The motion up for debate, does the mass collection of phone records violate the Fourth Amendment? And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. You've heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern Elizabeth Wydra. She is chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center and former supervising attorney at the Georgetown University Law Center Appellate Litigation Clinic. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here tonight. When the Founding Fathers drafted the Fourth Amendment, the mischief to which they were responding was principally the British use of general warrants or, and writs of assistance, broadly authorized searches that allowed um, British officers to go into the homes of American colonists without any particularized suspicion of wrongdoing And they were used broadly in the hope that if they went through enough people's stuff, they would find something that would show evidence of wrongdoing. Now, that sounds a little familiar to me today. These generalized searches back then were decried as instruments of arbitrary power. They were used to silence critics of the crown and to trample the personal liberty of the American colonists. In fact, American colonists' opposition to these sorts of generalized searches was, as Chief Justice Roberts explained in a recent Supreme Court decision on behalf of all nine justices on the court, applying robust Fourth Amendment protections to the searches of cell phones, the opposition to these sorts of warrantless generalized searches was one of the driving forces behind the revolution itself. To illustrate, the Chief Justice recounted a famous speech given in 1760s Boston by the patriot James Otis, denouncing the use of warrantless searches, generalized searches without individualized suspicion that invaded American colonists' privacy without probable cause. One young man listening in the audience that day was none other than John Adams. And recounting Otis's speech and the day, 
Adams described it later as the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. The need to get a warrant to have reasonable suspicion before invading someone's privacy, that wasn't a mere technicality, something on a checklist that you have to go through that slows down good law enforcement, something that the guys on Law and Order sort of get past with a wink and a nod. It was something that was so important to our founders that it was an essential part of the struggle for independence. The text of the Fourth Amendment, which you've seen on the screens, enshrines a specific prohibition, something that's rather unusual in the Constitution, which often speaks in broader terms, a specific prohibition against the types of suspicionless searches that the NSA is conducting every day on Americans. Now, the other side will try to say that there isn't a search or there's some exception that uh, makes it reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, but I would submit that any exception to the Fourth Amendment that allows the government to collect data that can reveal sensitive, deeply private information about every American citizen would swallow this most important protection in the Constitution, something that was so important to our founders that it breathed a spark to the fire of revolution. So if you keep as your North Star those founders, I trust that you will vote for the proposition that mass collection of Americans' private records violates the Fourth Amendment. Thank you, you. Elizabeth Wydra. And that's our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue against that motion, John Yu. He is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at UC Berkeley and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. Ladies and gentlemen, John Yu. Thank you uh, very much for that invitation, and uh, it's a real pleasure to return to the National Constitution Center. I'd like to thank uh, Jeff Rosen, an old college and law school friend of mine, and our worthy opponents who have the misfortune of not being from our great home city of Philadelphia, and so are destined to lose. So um, I want to just make uh, two important points. The most important point is that there's a reason why the government created these programs. It's the one that was present when I was in the government uh, on 9-11 itself, and the reason I was, one of the first things I had to do in the Justice Department was to pass on the legality of what became the uh, surveillance programs. And the reason why is that if you look at the text of the Fourth Amendment, it says we have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. On 9-11, we were attacked by a different kind of enemy, an enemy that hides, that communicates, using normal civilian communication methods like the Internet and phone calls to launch surprise attacks with devastating effect on our cities. After 9-11, confronted by this problem, this challenge, we decided this would be a reasonable thing to do to try to find any more terrorists coming to the United States by looking at phone numbers of people from abroad calling into the United States and what those phone numbers called to try to detect patterns of enemy agents trying to infiltrate into the United States. That's the purpose of the program, and I vigorously deny any idea that this is just part of some government dragnet because the government just likes to collect information about all of us just for the fun of it. Second point, I want to just point out that I'm sure uh, that our debate points are not often compared uh, to uh, conservatives, but they are the bedfellows of Robert Bork because what they have done is said, I don't care what precedent says. Throw out the fact that every federal judge to examine these programs at the appellate level and almost all of them at district court level 
have approved this. Throw out that the president has approved it, the Congress has approved it. Instead, from the phrases in the Fourth Amendment, I am going to discern this overriding principle that will be imposed on our society. How do they know that the framers would have disapproved of a collection program that collected phone numbers, didn't listen in on the conversations themselves, but only collected the phone numbers. Throw out all of those decades of cases, government understandings in favor of their understanding of the Constitution. But suppose you disagree with the Supreme Court. What should you do? Maybe I, as a policy matter, would draw the line between security and privacy somewhere else. We should decide it the way we decide most of the questions in our society. We have elections. This is not a question, I think, as a democracy that we should leave up to five, no offense to the retired people in the audience, superannuated elderly people on the Supreme Court probably don't know how cell phone or smartphone really works. I'm sure have no Facebook or Twitter accounts to let you know about their latest opinions. And so if you really want to change the law here and change what the government does, elect different people to Congress. Elect Rand Ball to president. Put, have them put into effect the policies that we want. But that's how our Constitution is designed to work. John Yu, I'm sorry your time is up, and thank you very much. John Yu, ladies and gentlemen. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Now we go on to round two, and round two are where the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you in the audience. Again, this is our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. We have a team arguing for the motion, Alex Abdo and Elizabeth Wydra. They have painted a picture of a world in which the government knows an enormous amount of, uh, about us because of its ability to skim uh, details about our lives from phone records, uh, and as they point out, an awful lot of content, real stories about who we are can come out of that information. They make the argument that the opinions governing this, uh, this process that have been relied upon by courts that have approved these practices are out of date. Um, and they also make the uh, argument uh, almost paradoxically that the founders of the Constitution and the writers of the Fourth Amendment certainly would not have approved because it was this very sort of thing that the colonists were fighting and went to war for in the American Revolution. The team arguing against the motion, John Yu and Stuart Baker, they're making the technical point initially, look, uh, we've won this debate because the Supreme Court has already settled this question. But in the spirit of the exchange of ideas here, they do go on to say that... It, in wartime, the stakes themselves uh, make the reasonableness issue, put the reasonableness issue in a different light, that the Fourth Amendment bans unreasonable search and seizures and that the government program uh, of collecting only d- data about when and where and who we called is not unreasonable uh, up against the, the stakes of needing to save American lives and defeat our enemies. So let's, let's get to some of the specifics that we heard about this. Um, first of all, there's this whole notion of what is a search. And, Stuart Baker, your opponents have said that basically uh, the NSA sweeping up an enormous amount of information, regardless of the fact that they're not actually listening to what's in the phone calls, is by itself constitutes a search and therefore gets us right into the area that is protected by the Fourth Amendment. So I'd like to talk, when is a search a search and when is it not? So if, um, if John keeps a diary... And the police want it. If they come to his house and take it, that's a search. If he gives it to his mom and she takes it home and the police come and knock on our door and say, would you give us a copy of John's diary? That's not a search. Uh, what the government has done here is they have gone to people to whom these 
records have been given by the people who made the phone calls. We all know the phone company needs to know what numbers we're dialing in order to, to deliver the call to the right place. So we have shared this information already. We can't expect to be able to claim a property right against search wherever that information so, goes. So the underlying principle of what constitutes privacy vis-a-vis sharing the information with other people works how? In other words, the, the, the more- Supreme Court's decision essentially stood for the proposition that you have a much diminished expectation of privacy once you've knowingly shared information with someone else, especially if the government gets it from that person. Okay, Alex Abdo, to respond to that. I think that reflects a pre-digital understanding of our privacy, and I think that's one of the fundamental problems with our opponent's position, uh, is that they ask a very simplistic question that may have made sense in the 1960s and 1970s, but doesn't make any sense today where the vast majority uh, of our communications have to be shared with an intermediary, not because we're voluntarily giving the information over to AT&T, or not because we're voluntarily giving it over to Yahoo or Microsoft or Gmail, but because we have to in order to use those communication systems. And I, and I think it would, be, it would you know, undermine the security of all those systems and undermine our right to privacy to say very simplistically uh, that, that this doctrine, this notion of sharing, is an on-off switch. That is never how uh, our judges have applied it. It's not how the Supreme Court has applied it. Uh, and if you look at recent cases, you're seeing a Supreme Court struggling with how to update privacy law to account for this dramatic change in, in technology. Okay, John, you your response to that. Yeah, I think we ought to be cautious of these efforts to claim just because some new technology came along, we have to throw out all the rules that we've had before and replace it with some uniform, general, radical, simple rule, especially when the technology is so new. We need to learn more about how all these technologies work, how they interface with law enforcement. Then, slowly, incrementally, we should be making decisions of what the best rules are rather than just saying, oh, because automobiles have come around, we can throw out all the rules about horse accidents, because those are horses and these are cars. Instead, we should try to analogize from the things that came before using common sense. That's what the Constitution seems to say. It says reasonable searches and seizures. Elizabeth Wydra. Well, you know, John mentioned in his remarks, he said that he didn't want to leave these decisions to, uh, you know, five uh, old guys on the Supreme Court. But I'm sorry to say that you're behind the times of nine justices on the Supreme Court, however old they are, because a unanimous Supreme Court told us that digital is different in a case that applied the Fourth Amendment to smartphones. Can you take one sentence to say different how? So before, when you would have this information that was available to the public, it was sort of a random tile that could give you a very small glimpse into a person's life. But because of the quantity of data that can be accessed very easily, this came up in a case about GPS locators, it adds up to a mosaic that provides a rather clear picture of a person's life in a way that you couldn't in a pre-digital age. That was two sentences with a parenthetical phrase, but but it was pretty tight. Like a semicolon. (laughs) Stuart Baker. So the one thing that we're acting as though is that if we don't have the Supreme Court ride to our rescue, all of this data is suddenly going to be available to the government under no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, since Smith against Maryland was decided, the, uh, Congress has, has enacted and amended the rules on electronic uh, searches four or five times. We can rely on democracy to make these decisions. The average age, by the way, of the Supreme Court, 70 years. There's no reason why we should ask the Supreme Court Stuart, to though, step d- in and does, decide does, this. Does your, does your defense of the position that, that there are safeguards in place actually defend the constitutionality? Yes. The, uh, my, my argument is we should not turn... The, the, right now, these uh, uh, records 
are not subject to Fourth Amendment analysis under Smith against Maryland. The argument is, well, that's going to open us all in a digital age I, to I bad know things. you've all alluded to Smith against Maryland. Just take three sentences. Or I can do yeah, it. I can do it. Okay. So in Smith against Maryland, uh, the cops were investigating um, calls to a woman, harassing calls to a woman. They got a pen register on a suspect's phone. What is a pen register? A pen register records all the numbers that he dials. And it does it down at the phone company. Down at the phone company. And uh, essentially they had call data records on this guy for several days until they realized, yes, he's making the bad calls. So he got arrested. She picked him out in the lineup, said, that's the guy. He got busted. And his lawyer said, that was an unfair search because you, you tapped me without a we warrant. We didn't have a warrant. And for, the court said, well, when you dial a phone number, that's not a secret because you that's just right. dialed it. You put it out into the world. Okay, so that's what the court is using now to say that the metadata is not a secret. Do I have that pretty much nailed? Alex? That's right. Yeah. Can okay. I respond to one thing that yes. just said? So, and, and something that a Professor, you said as well, which is that we shouldn't trust courts to safeguard our individual rights. And I think that a, a, reflects a fundamental misunderstanding about what the Bill of Rights is about. The Bill of Rights was designed to withdraw from political majorities the decisions that affect the individual rights of people who can't protect themselves through political constituencies. Uh, it was precisely for that purpose that the Constitution and our framers placed the, uh, those decisions in uh, unelected, uh, tenure-protected judges so that they could safeguard individual rights. And so I, th- I think the wrong answer is to say we should leave our individual rights to Congress, uh, particularly this Congress or the next. John, you do you want to respond to that? So um, the problem with this view of the Bill of Rights is uh, I quite agree the Bill of Rights is there to protect minority rights. I, I missed it in their presentation, I didn't hear any discussion of any minorities who are being singled out here for mistreatment by the government. This is a surveillance program that works on everybody. In fact, there is no way to know what the race or gender of the people whose data is being collected for. If there were a case, if it was targeted, say, for example, the IRS was only considering the applications of conservative groups or liberal groups for tax debts, that would be targeting a minority group, right? That would be targeting someone because of their ideology, right? Then I think you would have a much better claim. Two rows from the back. Thank you. Hi, my name is John Sorrett. I have a question for um, uh, the group uh, for the motion. If we find ourselves in a situation, and I hope this never happens, that um, terrorist attacks uh, significantly increase, would that change your argument or that's irrelevant to this, this question? That's a great question. No, I don't think Alex I would. I, everyone to have reviewed... Uh, the way that the NSA should go about its business says it should go about it in a targeted way and that the key to protecting the country is not through suspicionless surveillance of everyone, but through very targeted efforts directed at those uh, who are doing us harm. So you're saying it's never going to be a matter of degree. It's an absolute. I I think when you're talking about bulk collection, yes. Let me go to the other side just to see if they have a response to that. You've already to some degree answered that, but John, you, if you want to take it on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that shows how unreasonable the other side's position is, is that no matter how much the security threat goes, they are unwilling to bend and allow certain kinds of searches. I was there on 9-11, and we were confronted by an enemy that snuck into the country, communicated by email and phone calls. How did we even find them? How do we even know they were all hijackers together? We looked at exactly this kind of data to piece it together. I'm really worried, actually. I think the threat is much greater now than it was earlier because we have an enemy, ISIS, that controls a lot of territory, population, sophisticated weapons, and is beheading Americans abroad, and we are doing very little about it. I think we need to have such kind of programs in effect to stop them from getting over here. 
Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, um, especially when you bring up a lot of these very frightening scenarios, I think it's important to remember that, as Alex pointed out earlier, these bipartisan commissions that have access to the classified data have not found that that this bulk data collection has led to the prevention of an imminent attack. You know, I think I, I might take a slightly softer position than Alex on this in the sense that the Fourth Amendment doctrine does allow for um, exigent circumstances, exceptions to a warrant requirement, and that's, but that's very, very narrowly circumscribed. So you it, don't think we're in that now? I don't think we're in that now, and I don't think the bipartisan commissions that have access to this classified information think that we're in that position now. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And we're taking audience questions. Sir. Hello, my name is Rusty Faircloth. This is for the against side. Um, One of the premises of your argument is due to the fact that there's a third party involved, due to the fact that you released this information to the telephone carriers themselves, therefore it's not a violation of privacy. Is there a subject matter of which you would disagree with that idea? For example, bank records or medical records. You have to submit those to your insurance. Do you believe the federal government should be able to amass every transaction I do digitally with a credit card on any account because I go through a merchant? So uh, let me try that. Stuart Baker. Uh, uh, briefly, no, I don't believe that the government should be able to access willy-nilly all of those records. And I support legislation that Congress has passed that, by and large, already addresses financial privacy, already addresses the privacy of your email, already addresses the privacy of your medical records. It is too hard to let the Supreme Court every 35 Stuart, years Stuart, decide I what it wants. I think what the relevance of the question is, would those things be a violation of the Fourth Amendment? No, I think it's a bad idea to bring the court in and let this stuff be but, decided but, once but for no, 40 But they years. would not violate the Fourth Amendment, I clearly. would not. Okay. This is uh, addressed to the against panel. How does the use of burner phones uh, affect your reasonableness argument? The what kind of phones? Burner fo- ph- phones you buy at Walmart and aren't traceable. It's, those are called burner phones? Yeah. You, I feel if very you watch The Wire, you now. would know this. <laughs> <laughs> So, right. so I, I, let, me, let me try Stuart this. Baker. Bur, burner phones make it much easier for people to make one phone call and throw the phone away, buy another phone, make one phone call. It makes it much harder to find people, uh, and it's certainly impossible to say, I have a wiretap order on this person and to be able to get all of their calls. But what you can do, again, you can use the pattern of their calls to identify people as suspect. If you use a burner phone to call a safe house in Yemen, uh, the government Government ought to be able to find out about that call and then to look at the pattern of calls. Okay, I'm going to stop you because the, the, the question really was a huge softball to your side. Because okay. yeah, but I, but I wanted to let the other side take sure. that take a crack at that question because you're being presented again and again with situations where uh, the defense of the nation uh, would be enhanced. It is argued by the ability to do these searches or seizures, um, and and uh, and that therefore that affects the reasonableness issue. Um, do you, uh, let's hear from Alex on this one. Yeah, I think again one of the easiest responses is simply that this issue has been analyzed 
organized by two bipartisan groups of individuals who've concluded that we can engage in targeted collection of information to solve these problems. You know, one of the repeated uh, hypotheticals has come from uh, from Stewart about uh, the safe house in Yemen. One of the commissions very carefully studied that particular example, uh, and they decided that it would have been very easy for the government to have used targeted surveillance requests to uncover the link between the safe house in Yemen uh, and the parties on the USN because they had the phone number of the safe house. Indeed, they had to have the phone number because that's the only way they knew about the safe house. And they could have taken that phone number and gone to the three major telecoms in the United States and served them with this order, and they would have very quickly uncovered uh, the existence of the safe house. That's what the commission concluded. Uh, and I think the same is, is likely true for, for burner phones. I, I want to bring a question. I, oh, sorry. Uh, question saying, on do you. we so distrust ourselves that we need justices and Supreme Court to decide to know what a burner phone is and then to figure out the right rule? You know, I, I mean, the, the justices of the Supreme Court, they probably think a burner phone is something that's too hot to touch for a little while. You've got to let it cool down. <laughs> they have no idea what burner phones well, are Well, like the be. moderator, they could just ask the question <laughs> I mean, and find out the answer is, very quickly. You know, I, do we so distrust ourselves that we can't make that decision through legislation to figure out the best way to handle The worst thing would be if the judges set a rule down in concrete and then set our response in a way that we can't take account of evolving technologies. I think it's much better for a legislature, the executive branch, to study the problem, figure out the best responses as we go along as new technology develops. Elizabeth Wedger. Yeah, you know, I, we have already made this decision. We, the people, ratify the Fourth Amendment. And so I think that to make it seem like that's still in play just disregards the Constitution. But, I, you know, I want to make a point about law enforcement. And, um, you know, the Fourth Amendment does not yield to concerns of efficiency. The Supreme Court very clearly stated this when it said that if the police want to search a smartphone when it's arresting someone, that would be a great way to find really good evidence. And, in fact, they did in those cases. They have, you know, pictures of this guy with guns in front of a car that was used in a shooting. But the court said that privacy comes at a cost, and when that cost is efficiency, that must yield the concerns of the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, these justices understand technology, they have clerks, and they have said that digital is different when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, and that the Fourth Amendment doesn't just yield to make things easier for law enforcement in all circumstances. I, I wanted to take note of something about how, the, how both teams have, re, have re, re, uh, responded to, uh, to actions of, uh, of our predecessors. And Alex Abdo, you were saying we shouldn't be bound by Smith versus Maryland. It's 1979. Technology has changed. John, you, you were saying we shouldn't be bound by what we think. We're trying to imagine what the framers thought. That in, and to some degree, both of you are saying let's not worry too much about the past, I think. But in, in, the, in the sort of fundamental romantic sense, I think a lot of people will find appeal to what Elizabeth Wadra was saying initially, that, that uh, the, the colonists went to war to stop this kind of an invasive uh, search that the British, uh, the, the British uh, um, government was doing at the time. Well, what is, what is, you didn't actually make a direct response to, to that somewhat sentimental yet powerful notion. No, like I mean, we it. wouldn't be here at something called the National Constitution Center if we didn't have a romantic vision of the Constitution and our, the revolution and our framing. And I'm someone who loves to look at the evidence from the framing in my own uh, written work, which is on sale at a very low price on Amazon.com. Uh, <laughs> all you have to do is apparently look at your phone now and you'll buy, you can buy my book. Um, but the point is, is that this is exactly the same argument that are confronted by our courts all the time, too, and our government leaders, this claim... You're going to overthrow the Constitution. You're making our enemies would agree what we're doing to our own country. But when they're faced with these claims, they have never said, 
oh, there's a blanket rule that we know from the framers in the search and seizure context we have to impose. You would think that they would from their description, the opponent's description of the Constitution, but think about all the places where the court has not done that. But then Metal why, detectors then, at then airports. Why not, then why not also update your, your view of Smith versus Maryland as your opponent? They could, but, that's, uh, but they haven't done it yet, and no lower court has yet. And instead, in all, there's lots of other contexts where the court has adopted this balancing approach. I was going to say, metal detectors at airports, aren't those searches? Drunk driver checkpoints, aren't those searches? Urinalysis, drug testing for employers. I mean, there's lots of contexts, actually, where our government has uh, been allowed to conduct broad, uh, non-particularized searches that are considered fairly minimal in order to stop a great threat to public safety. I just want to let Alex Abdo respond to that and take one more I think it's wrong to say that our courts uh, are not grappling the question of whether Smith versus Maryland remains relevant today. Uh, Not too long ago, a court of appeals said that our email is protected by the Constitution, even though we have to share it with Gmail. That's a very common-sense conclusion, but it's one that our opponents would apparently resolve by saying email is not protected because it's stored on the, party, uh, on the servers of a third party. Uh, and more recently, the Supreme Court has said, five justices have said uh, in various opinions, that uh, Smith versus Maryland may not make sense in the digital era. And it's, and it's quite obvious why, because if that were the law of the land, uh, then virtually everything we do today, uh, which is reduced to a digital trail, would be susceptible to bulk collection by the government. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. On to round three, closing statements from each debater in turn. They will be brief. First, to summarize her position in favor of the motion, mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment, Elizabeth Wydra, Chief Counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Thank you so much, John. So I think it's important to think about what we haven't heard tonight. We haven't heard any solid case for why the government needs to engage in this mass collection of Americans' phone records going on every day. As Alex said, if you make a call tonight, the NSA will know about it and have it recorded tomorrow. They haven't shown that there is a need to engage in this dragnet surveillance that offends the principles of the Constitution uh, to thwart an imminent attack. And while we have talked a lot about some of these very disturbing scenarios of terrorist activity, I think that getting back to one of the questions earlier, it is in these times of crisis It is in those times, as well as in the easy times, that our principles and our devotion to our founding principles are tested. And in closing, I just want to get to this very odd idea, which we didn't explore anymore, about somehow that it's okay that the government just collects the information, and it's not really problematic for the Constitution if they don't actually look at it. Well, I want you to think about this before you vote again. Um, You know, if the government stationed a person to stand next to your bathtub every time you took a bath, do you think your privacy isn't invaded if the government agent stands there with his hands over his eyes the whole time? I'm going to think that you're going to think things have gotten a lot less private up in there before he looks when you're taking your bath. So I think we need to think about the collection of this information is just as bad as if they actually looked at the content And not just that, the fact that they take this information in the first place reveals a lot of data and personal information about us. Thanks, Elizabeth. Roger, your your time is up. Thank you very much. Our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Here to summarize his position against this motion, Stuart Baker, a partner at Steptoe & Johnson and former general counsel at the NSA. 
So I, I think to vote for this motion, you have to want to change the law to create more privacy than current law creates. And let me explain why I give these speeches and appear here. Uh, uh, it's because I spent the 1990s advocating for a privacy and civil liberties doctrine that would separate intelligence and law enforcement because I thought that it was important that intelligence capabilities not be used, if at all possible, against ordinary American criminal suspects. I thought it sounded like a good civil liberties doctrine and we ought to change the rules so that that was the case. We created a wall. We built that wall higher and higher until in August of 2001 when we found out from intelligence sources that there were al-Qaeda operatives in the United States and the FBI law enforcement task force that had all the resources said, we just heard about this. We can find these guys. They're in the United States. We'll get them. Let us at them. And they were told to sit down and shut up because this came from the intelligence side of the uh, uh, government, and they weren't allowed to do anything with it. They never did, we never did find those guys, because the intelligence agencies had very few capabilities inside the United States until they flew into the World Trade Center. I never want to live with myself again for saying, well, it sounds like a little more privacy. What the heck? Let's change the rules How bad could it be? It could be very bad. This is not a good law to change at this time. Thank you, Stuart Baker. Our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Alex Abdo, a staff attorney at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Thanks, John. I want to take a slightly different tack. So in 1981, it cost around $300,000 to store a gigabyte of data. Uh, By 2010, just a couple of years ago, that cost had plummeted to about 10 cents. Uh, And by next year, some people estimate it'll be about 2 cents to store a gigabyte of data. Uh, And just to give you a sense of what that means for surveillance, it means that that you could store the entire audio uh, from every single phone call that a single person has made over the course of an entire year uh, for about 10 cents. And by next year, it'll be about 2 cents. Uh, The result of that plummeting cost of storage is that for the first time in our nation's history, truly pervasive surveillance is possible. It will be possible for the government uh, to store not just, uh, not to keep track of not just who you email, who you call, and what websites you visit. They'll be able to make a copy of every email you send, to record every phone call you make, uh, to archive every website that you visit. Uh, This is not science fiction. Uh, This is Uh, this is a predictable result of falling storage and the proliferation of these types of surveillance devices on military fields now coming home uh, to return to us, to local law enforcement. I think that's why this debate, tonight's debate, about mass collection of phone records is about so much more uh, than phone records and so much more than the NSA. Uh, If our opponents are correct, uh, it won't end with the NSA, it won't end with the FBI, and it won't end with even local law enforcement. Mass collection will be uh, the norm. And so the choice you have is whether you want to live in a free society or one in which our every movement and our every communication is tracked, uh, recorded, and stored in a database. Uh, In the past, cost was the main protection we had against that sort of world. Uh, But cost is no longer an issue. The Fourth Amendment is all we have left. Uh, And that's why I think you should vote for the motion uh, that mass collection violates the Fourth Amendment. Thank you, Alex Abdo. And that is the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to summarize his position against this motion, John Yu, professor of law at UC Berkeley and former Justice Department lawyer. Well, it's been a uh, great pleasure to uh, participate in this debate and try to urge you one way or the other. 
You know, we're sitting in Philadelphia, again, I'd like to emphasize, my hometown. And we're at the site of the drafting of the Constitution in the little room across the way. And this was not a perfect document. It wasn't a document that bent to one overall principle or another. One thing you get a very much a sense of if you go visit that little room or you read accounts of the Constitution is that it was the product of compromises made by practical people who wanted to create a workable government. And so our Constitution does two things. It does protect rights. But as many justices, particularly Justice Jackson, remind us, the Constitution is also not a suicide pact. It is not a document that's designed to place individual rights above the ability of our society to defend itself from foreign attack. And so that's how we are supposed to look at these kinds of questions, by the text of the Fourth Amendment and by decades and decades of Supreme Court opinions going back many, many years. What is it reasonable thing for us as a society to do? Is it reasonable to try to find al-Qaeda terrorists using these kinds of technologies, or do we think that they so outweigh our rights to privacy that judges should stop them? I would say, actually, that this is a decision where our side is arguing for a little bit of modesty and humility, that we don't have the right answer. We cannot predict the way technology will run. We can't predict everything al-Qaeda is going to do or enemy is going to do. The other side keeps saying, what kind of society do we want to live in? I think that's for us to decide through elections, through our own choices, and not because a few judges on the Supreme Court tell us what kind of society to live in. So thank you very much, and vote for us. Thank you, John Yu. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued the best. We're going to ask you right now to go to the keypad at your seat that will register your vote. After hearing the arguments, push one if you agree with the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Push number two if you disagree with this motion. Push number three if you remain or became undecided in the course of the debate. And while we're doing that, the first thing I want to say is uh, it's the goal of Intelligence Squared to uh, show that uh, tough discourse can be had in a civil way. And I really think these four debaters were great at that. And I want to congratulate all of them for what they did. Okay, so it's all in. I have the final results now. Remember, you have voted twice, once before the debate, and again, after hearing the argument, and the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's look at the first vote on the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Before the debate, 46% agreed with the motion. 17% were against the motion. 37% were undecided. So those are the first results. You need to move the numbers most by percentage point terms to win this debate. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 66%. They went from 46 to 66%, picking up 20 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 17%. Second, 28%. They pulled up 11 percentage points, but it's not enough. The debate won by the team arguing for the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented in partnership with the National Constitution Center, was held in front of a live audience at the F.M. Kirby Auditorium in Philadelphia. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. 
And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. This program was supported by the Daniel Berger Esquire Programming Fund for the National Constitution Center. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. When does learning begin? Are we at the end of privacy? And what does the road from curiosity to discovery look like? The TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, and new ways to think and create. Find the TED Radio Hour on iTunes under podcasts. 